Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm Steph McKenna from the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich, UNESCO City of Literature. It's July 2023 and the NCW team are busy with the launch of many exciting programmes, including the East Anglian Book Awards, which just opened for submissions, and the Escalator Talent Development Programme and Emerging Translator Mentorships, which both open later in the month. Make sure to check out our website, nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, for the full details. The weather today is beautiful outside and it feels like the perfect season for some wild swimming. In this episode, I'm delighted to bring you an interview with award-winning author and natural history writer, Patrick Barkham. Patrick's books include The Butterfly Isles, Badgerlands, Islander and Wild Child. His latest book, The Swimmer, is the definitive biography of beloved writer, filmmaker and environmentalist Roger Deacon. Roger is well known for his trilogy of books about nature, Waterlog, Wildwood and Notes from Walnut Tree Farm. Patrick is in conversation with NCW Chief Executive Chris Gribble. They had a wide-ranging chat about the process of writing The Swimmer, including Patrick's abandonment of a nearly completed manuscript in favour of a brand new approach, and how Patrick found ways to hear the voice of an author whose work he knew well, but who he never met. They touch on the impact and legacy of Roger as one of the forerunners of the new nature writing movement, the ethics of biography, and the hard graft of reconstructing a life from the myriad of physical and emotional traces a writer has left behind. So now I'm delighted to hand over to Chris in conversation with Patrick Barkham. Welcome, Patrick Barkham, to Writing Life Podcast. It's great to see you today. Thank you for having me here, Chris. We're recording this on a quite an overcast morning in Norwich in the kind of early June, uh, but I'm I'm really hopeful that summer is going to come soon. And kind of every time I come into spring and summer, I, I genuinely every year I think about Roger's book Waterlog at this time of year because it it really prompts my sort of my slightly cowardly outdoor swimming habit. Uh, kind of I start in May and I end in late October, and I, I don't push it further. But this is a Roger Dickeny time of year for me yeah it, it really is isn't it and I'm a similar swimmer to you Chris in that I like cold water and I like outdoor wild water I don't swim in a swimming pool and um, I tend to swim from yeah May through to through to the autumn you can stretch it out can't you till well, the end of October before it gets too painful October's warmer than May most of the time <laughs> yeah 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 absolutely yeah the water's very cold at this time of year and it's been hard to get in in East Anglia because we've had about six weeks of northeasterly winds and yeah. when on a day when there's wind chill it's really hard to get in the water yeah I feel better knowing that there's actually some sign scientific reason for it rather than my just general kind of nashness. <laughs> We're here today to talk about uh, The Swimmer, uh, The Wildlife of Roger Deacon, which is your um, kind of, well, I want to say biography. It's, it's, it is a biography but, and it isn't in some way, so we'll come on to that shortly. But kind of how did you come across Roger Deacon and, and how did he enter your sort of world? So like most people, I first encountered Roger as a reader. And in the early 2000s, I picked up Waterlog. I think it was recommended to me, word of mouth. And I read it and I loved it as a book. And I hadn't read anything quite like it. And here was a 
Um, I mean, it's a it's an eccentric sort of book. Um, Roger begins in the moat outside his 16th century farmhouse in Suffolk, um, swimming, and he writes in the first pages about this frog's eye view of the world you get when you're swimming, breaststroke. He always liked to swim breaststroke, the naturalist mm. stroke, moving through the water. And he really opened up a world for me and made me realise that you could see Britain very differently as a network of lakes and rivers and streams which he swam through and showed us all i think that we could swim in some of these inhospitable looking streams and even ditches you know and um and it was a kind of enraptured romantic view of britain and here was a englishman who was a kind of hero um romantic but funny um not colonial or or authoritative but playful and enraptured with the landscape around him mm. i think that kind of those kind of enraptured romantic and playful are really three words that come up or emotions that come up again and again in 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 uh, kind of in your book um how did it how did it work on you as a reader at that point in your life so it definitely I mean, I hadn't really encountered British nature writing didn't exist as a thing then, I don't think. Uh, Waterlog was published in 1999 and I loved it as a book. I think I saw it as a travel book with uh, beautiful evocations of the natural world within it and uh, that lovely sensitivity towards other species and as well as people and he writes about social history of swimming too and mm -hmm. so for me it, it definitely influenced me personally in terms of how i uh, live in the world and that you know being more willing to go swimming i mean i have always swam um in the sea and so forth but um more willing to go swimming in unlikely places and then in literary terms i i was a journalist at the time and and not an author and you certainly read roger and you think wow this is this is quite how I'd like to write with this much verve and imagination. I've, I've tended to read more fiction than non-fiction in my life. And here was a piece of non-fiction where the similes and metaphors and analogies were every bit as creative and imaginative as they are in fiction. And so that's what I loved as a reader. Mm, I think that uh, it's sort of the opposite of journalism, isn't it? At that, in Waterlog, it's, very, it's a... You can't imagine that getting into mainstream press as a, as a well, I suppose in lifestyle you could, but just about. Uh, I think I came across it, I think I was just moving between working for Waterstones in Manchester to moving into kind of a poetry publishing world at the time. And it kind of, again, it was one of those word of mouth books that all of my bookseller friends were going, oh, come on, you know, this is this is the thing that you're going to have to read. And we kind of went through all of that group like wildfire at the time. And... And I think I absolutely consumed it and kind of read a lot. And then it sort of vanished from my kind of my worldview a little bit um, because he didn't publish any more books in his lifetime, of course. And then in 2006, I moved to Norwich. And at that point, I was thinking, well, actually, it's a collateral thing, but I, this is going to be brilliant. I'm going to be not far from Roger Deakin. And I moved here in July 2006. And of course... He very sadly died in the August of that month. That's right, yeah. That yeah. Yeah, he did without, as you say, without publishing another book. And he was struggling all through his later years with trying to write Wildwood, which he wanted to call Touching Wood with his typical playful humour. <laughs> um, but it was a big book about 
trees and our relationship with wood and it was a very ambitious book and he really struggled with that follow-up but also he had a brain tumor undiagnosed Mm -hmm. and we don't know for how long but it was probably for several years and clearly by the end that was affecting his ability to finish that book and and friends just thought here was a writer struggling with his second book but sadly he was struggling with something much more serious yeah yeah and you knew him by that point by 2006 no i didn't so i never met roger and uh the worlds of environmentalism and writing in east anglia are all quite small but uh we never coincided and um there's all kinds of weird coincidences we were we were almost certainly in Cambridge University Library at the same time we were almost certainly in pubs in North London at the same time (laughs) we were almost certainly in the small Suffolk town of Eye at the same time because my dad lived yards away from where Roger's mum lived right and we would have been visiting them at the same time her later life didn't she in in the 1990s she was she was there and so there were all these weird coincidences but I never met him didn't know him I wasn't a published author until after his passing and um i found in his archive he'd cut out some of my guardian stories Mm, and and kept them because they were of subjects that interested him but we we hadn't met each other you know on the literary circuit or in literary festivals or anything so and i thought that would bequeath me with a useful sort of neutral gaze and i ended up just craving five minutes in his company Mm. to feel that kind of innate warmth and sympathy that you feel for another person when you share a space with them which is transformative that kind of human connection i mean i've known your work for a number of years kind of through national center for writing and writer center norwich as we were before and kind of when the news came through that you were, were writing this because your previous titles include the butterfly isles badgerlands coastlines islander wild child coming home to nature everyone went Oh, of course, obviously that's that's going to work. Um, how how did it how did it happen as a, as a commission or as an exploration or as a joint venture? So it happened because my wife Lisa, who is a proper wild swimmer, unlike me, spotted on a wild swimming website that you could now hire out um, some of Roger's old cabins, the old shepherd's hut in the grounds of Walnut Tree Farm, and she booked us a night away there as a treat, and with my knack for turning treats into work i wrote a travel piece for the guardian about it but it was being there being in walnut tree farm being in this Mm. space that hadn't been inhabited by roger for uh since uh 2007 and 2006 um that was just, it was such a magical experience being there and the place seemed so suffused with his spirit Mm. and it's been kept very sensitively by the subsequent owners. And that set me thinking, my word, like someone must be writing his biography and if not, then I would love to. And I'd just written Wild Child, which is quite a personal, it's my most personal book. Mm. And I wanted to write something that wasn't remotely about me. (laughs) I wanted to write something about someone else. And so that side of it appealed but also the fact that Roger's East Anglian I felt I understood his landscape or at least he came to be East Anglian and his archive his amazing archive of all his notebooks that he kept and many other papers is kept at the University of East Anglia here in Mm. Norwich I'm local to Norwich it seemed to make sense on so many levels so I went I went and saw Robert McFarlane who's Roger's uh, literary executor Uh, Robert and Roger were good friends in, in Roger's later life And I sort of said to Rob, well, 
I assume you're writing his biography, aren't you? And he was like, no, no, I've, you know, and Rob, Robert's written very beautifully about Roger in, mm. in World Places and, and in his other books, in Landmarks too. And I think he felt he was too close to Roger to write his biography and maybe that wasn't a project that appealed to him. Mm-hmm. And he now felt, thankfully, that the time was right for a biography of Roger. 15 years had passed since his, his death almost. And also that... Uh, I would be a good person, hopefully. So, um, yeah, so it it kind of happened from there. And um, I've ended up writing something that's been published by by the um, Hamish Hamilton who published Roger as well. So Mm. it's all sort of fitted together. Quite aligned. And and it did (laughs) seem aligned. But I must say, I had that sort of nervous few months when I was writing a proposal for this book, thinking, I really desperately want to write this book above all else. And... If I can't, mm. I'll be quite gutted. But thankfully, yeah, it all flowed, and yeah. um, and it was it was three years from that moment to uh, three and a half years from that moment to publication. And mm. um, the book that is with us now, uh, how closely does that resemble your proposal? Um, like all good proposals or good books hopefully the the end result differs radically from the proposal as 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 they should you know i think if you end up delivering a book that only fulfills the proposal then you obviously haven't traveled anywhere during the writing of that book so um i would hope um that every every book of mine becomes different and better than the proposal and what really changed was that i'd written 90,000 words of conventional biography. Mm-hmm. I hadn't quite reached the end, actually, but I'd got to the point where I knew all the material and I knew what I was including. And I looked back on my first draft and it was competent and thorough and I was quite pleased with it, but I just thought it didn't suit such an unconventional person. And um, I I'd long wanted to have the voices of other people in it. So mm. it already had uh, sections where we had the um, voices of his friends. And in that, I was really um, influenced by um, George Sanders, the American novelist, and his wonderful novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, Mm. which has these lovely extracts from different historical sources that describe a scene in different ways. So you get all these competing or differing perspectives. Triangulation. Yeah, exactly. And so I'd already done a bit of that, but I thought, well... Actually, the best person to write about Roger is Roger himself. And he's written about himself in notebooks from aged eight to the end of his life. Why don't I see if I can use his voice and splice together his letters, notebooks, rough drafts, bits of journalism, some tiny bits of published work, and maybe add a little bit of context in my own words but um, merge it together and write as Roger and I went actually to Walnut Tree Farm and stayed in one of the shepherd's huts again and spent a weekend trying to write with Roger as Roger I don't want to say as Roger because it genuinely felt like a collaboration between us and sometimes I'm just Roger's editor (laughs) and other times I'm sort of writing a bit more with him and what emerged excited me and thankfully excited my editor too Simon Mm. Prosser who had edited Roger Mm. and so we decided to go for it and then I, I rewrote my 90,000 words in Roger's voice. Sounds incredibly painful, and it just wasn't, which again makes mm. me feel like this is the form it had to take. So you, you didn't have a kind of a ritual tearing up of a manuscript and starting again. <laughs> you were kind of reworking and reappropriating and restitching that yeah. research and yeah. that work together. It, it, it could have 
felt catastrophic, you know, that, that need to start again. But actually it felt like by this point, I felt like I knew the material back to front. I could see it in every direction. Mm-hmm. And I just had to look and, um, and go back to Roger's writing and, and mine the bits that I needed. Mm-hmm. And in many cases, I, I already had them. And then a few lucky things happened, like the current owners of Walnut Tree Farm found an old computer of Roger's in their attic that had been forgotten about. And I got it, and through some clever tech guy, he got all the material off the old hard right. drive. Right. And I suddenly had access to a load of drafts of Roger's journalism, which was really useful. Mm-hmm. And I found some old emails he'd kept, because he kept everything. Um, including, for example, Roger wrote nothing about his time at Cambridge. Mm. And so I thought I'd really struggle with his university days chapter. And then I found an email he'd written to Kingsley Amos's, sorry, yes, to Kingsley Amos's biographer, who um, Roger had written an email because Kingsley had been his tutor. And he'd written to Kingsley's biographer with his recollections of Cambridge and being taught by Kingsley. And that suddenly formed the backbone of that chapter. There was enough of Roger to sort of support that chapter. And that was all brand new material, effectively. It hadn't been seen before. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't in the archive. It hadn't been seen before. So I I did manage to discover some new stuff, which is kind of exciting too. Mm. Lots of people compare Roger's approach to life as as that he was a kind of treasure seeker, always seeking treasure, opening up boxes, uh, and mostly... um, through people you know he loved to meet people and um kind of almost suck the stories out of them and then in my own way i was a treasure seeker too you know opening up parts of roger's life and seeking seeking those stories that that told us more about him what do you what do you as a as the author because although it was a collaboration you are very much the the curator and the author of this what do you think the those kind of triangulating into interpolating voices bring to the narrative what did you hope that they would bring to our understanding of roger so what i hoped was i don't think there's a better writer than roger at uh, creating a romantic view of the world and i hoped that the other voices would um kind of come in and not necessarily destroy that vision but mm. but add other views and add a kind of reality because uh, you know the biographer's purpose is to write history and it is not to just um continue the myth making mm. and so i felt it important to have these differing perspectives in there and it was really interesting to see how people remember differently and remember different parts of a situation and how you can knit it all together and mm. and you know one of the difficulties of this method is i'm not able to exercise over biographical judgment Mm-hmm. But and, uh, you know, most biography contains a lot of sort of judgments about what's important, what's not. And also moral judgments a lot yeah. of the time about how someone's lived and whether they've lived well or rightly or whatever. And part of me, I really don't like that kind of moralizing when I read some conventional biographies. I feel like there's too much of the biographer in there and too much judgment. And but. There does need to be some, and I think I've brought that through the choice of material. Mm. And so, um, you know, uh, there's a huge amount of material, and which, and so a lot of the challenge was to try and get it down to something readable mm. and not to. I didn't want to create a kind of doorstep that told you what Roger was doing one Sunday afternoon in 1977, mm. but 
you know, I, I wanted something fairly comprehensive too. And so I do think there's there's my judgments in there through mm-hmm. the choice of material and how I've presented it and how I've used those differing voices and who I've chosen to amplify and who mm. I've chosen not to amplify. I think that there's a there may be a subset of Roger's kind of passionate devotees who would love that what he did on Sunday at seven pm. That may be a future volume, but we'll we'll kind of come back to that. Uh, I loved one reviewer sort of uh, noted that the perspectives that you brought in stirred sediment into the clear waters of Deacon's narrative, and that's a kind of a lovely way of kind of. Well, it's a polite way of saying that they sort of cast a different light on his behaviour, his choices and his kind of self-image. How did you manage the sometimes quite jarring kind of different takes on kind of Roger's course through some of the decisions he made, whether he made those decisions or whether he let them happen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and it was really difficult and uh you know, as you might expect from a great romantic writer, Roger himself lived very romantically and he had a very interesting romantic life and a colourful love life. Uh, friends tend to use the euphemism complicated for Roger's <laughs> um, love life. And he had a lot of um, passionate love affairs with with women. And um, most of those women are still alive and all but one agreed to talk to me at great length and the one woman who didn't want to talk still shared some of Roger's letters to me, for which I was very grateful. Sorry, some some of Roger's letters to her, for which I was very grateful. And then it was a matter of balancing their views with also the views of some of his other friends. Roger was a tremendous loyal friend to women as well as men and had deep connections with a lot of people. And um, some of those friends obviously give kind of Roger's defence. Mm-hmm. and Roger, But Roger's not around today to defend himself. So yeah. it is quite difficult. Mm. Where there were moments where Roger hadn't written about, say, his love life, it was quite difficult to um, work out what to bring in, what mm-hmm. material to use, what was fair comment, if you like, mm-hmm. what perhaps wasn't so fair um one of roger's friends gave me a very useful critique he actually it was terence blacker who's a writer and a biographer Mm. and a person whose judgment i greatly respect not least because terence was spot on with roger's rather rough first draft of waterlog and basically gave him the advice that eventually roger heeded that made the classic book that we see today Mm. so terence when terence gave me some advice i shared a draft of of this biography with him i took it very seriously and terence felt that my um version of reality wasn't quite fair because i was talking to people who had um, a relationship with Roger that had ended and obviously um, whatever your views of that relationship they're, they're coloured by the end and the way yeah. it ends and um, and they're not necessarily going to give a great defence of Roger and he felt that Roger wasn't here to defend himself and so I uh, you know I took that critique seriously and I tried to ensure that I was being fair to Roger as well as fair to the people who were still alive in terms of ethics I actually took the decision to that every person who'd had every woman who'd had a relationship with Roger um, a physical relationship or sexual relationship if you like could see what I wrote that pertained to them before publication and Mm -hmm. comment on it and I didn't promise that I would change everything they were unhappy with but I said we'd have a conversation and a lot of those relationships with Roger's lovers became 
lengthy collaborations, yes. including the most difficult one, which um, was where Roger had a uh, had a long and very passionate and often lovely relationship with a woman, but it was also a relationship that was violent, mm-hmm. and and that required really, really careful collaboration. And and I hope that Roger's um, partner is is I think she's pleased with the result. We've been mm. in touch since, and I really I said to her at the end because she was struggling to work out what she wanted to say about their relationship in a way that was fair to him and her. And in the end, I said, "Look, here's the page. You can have it. Here's here's the point at which you can say what you really feel, what you want to say." And she found the words eventually, and we got there. And and I think so. What emerges, I hope, is something that's really respectful to the people who who struggled with Roger, as mm. well as with the people who loved Roger and, mm. and had a less complicated relationship with him. Yeah, and it's very moving that that, that part of the book as well, and, and that, that the kaleidoscope, the kaleidoscope around him starts to resolve at that point. Um, it makes me think that, you know, kind of earlier on in his life, after he'd published Waterlog and it had had huge success, you include a number of comments from friends and associates that they felt that there was a lack of Roger in Waterlog. Um, and is the, has the reception from that group of people kind of to your book been that Roger is really present in what you've created this time? Yeah, I mean, so far, and I've sent copies to the, the sort of key friends and so on and I've had some wonderful comments back and that's been really really nice and, and, and heartening and they felt that yeah the real Roger does come through it's really interesting that question of, of, of Waterlog because I do think a couple of his um, former partners make a really good critique of Waterlog but Roger was I think Roger was conscious of the fact that he didn't write about his emotions mm. in Waterlog. And he, he said at the time he, he didn't want to write one of those fashionable books where one airs one's um, emotional life. And, and he, he actually sort of referenced... Until he realised they would go, go on to be more and more fashionable. Well, exactly. <laughs> and, and at that point, it wasn't um, yeah. writ so much. And he, he referenced Nick Hornby in this as a sort of per- example of a writer who wrote about their personal life. But I wonder if Roger would have done had he lived for longer. Mm. I feel fairly sure he would have written a memoir of his childhood. Yeah. But whether he'd ever written about his mother say and this was a, a real puzzle for me how much his problematic relationship with his mother contributed to his struggles in romantic relationships later on and Roger never really reflects on that in his writing in his private writing and I found it really sad actually that there's this wonderful bit in Waterlog which I remember reading and where he goes to Northumberland to your part of the world mm. Chris and he writes about the coast there and there's a great melancholy in his writing about the landscape there mm. and it turns out that at that point Roger's mum died yes and he never wrote about it in Waterlog yes. and I feel like oh what a shame why didn't you share that with readers at that point because it really made sense yes right. so it's there in his writing but it's not explicit that's sort of point where he was somewhere between Bamber and Lindisfarne I think wasn't it yeah. exactly yeah, well I mean one of his kind of former partners says kind of kind of in response to to that that he never swam below the surface and you mentioned very early on that he always swam breaststroke the, the kind of the, the botanist or the or the naturalist's stroke and, and she then went on to say it like he didn't realize it was an option to go underneath the surface and do you think he just didn't or his upbringing and his emotional kind of state was such that he didn't view that self-reflection as possible or optional for him 
It's really interesting because he obviously in his life underwent long periods of self-reflection. And my personal favourite bits of Roger's writing are, are 1960s Roger, where he's a young man and he's writing in his notebooks about his romantic life and how he behaves with his friends. And he's wonderfully self-reflective and self-critical and but emotional and romantic too he sort of does it all (laughs) and I kind of feel and there was some letters he wrote in the 70s that I reproduced bits of in the biography where I think he's absolutely completely understanding where he is in his emotional tangle Mm. and then somehow that stops in in later life and actually Mm. his later notebooks which I think as Terence Blacker says too, because Terence helped collect um, his notebooks in the fabulous Notes from Walnut Tree Farm, mm-hmm. which reveals what a brilliant diarist Roger was, yes, yeah, an observer book. of small things. Yeah. And those, I think Roger was writing with an eye on publication mm-hmm. because he doesn't reflect on anything internal. Mm-hmm. It's all about the stuff around him, the nature around him, which is lovely. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's almost like he ceased to explore that. And I know he undertook therapy in the 1980s, and I think he decided after uh, his relationships ended in the 80s and 90s with these two key women in, in, in his life that actually he wasn't going to go there anymore. Mm-hmm. He'd done enough self-exploration. It didn't get him anywhere. He was who he was. He was happy with who he was and he was going to live in the way that he wanted to live mm-hmm. and for better and for worse. And that's what he did. Uh, from the outside point of view, I never really had a sense that he was ever unhappy or uncertain of who he was and how he wanted to live, to be fair. <laughs> Um, I, I think it's. Um, I want to think a little bit about his his legacy uh, and kind of what has come since then. So you know, the, kind of as you said, he only published Waterlog in his lifetime, and then Wildwood came, and then Notes from Walnut Tree Farm, um, which I think was that two thousand and ten, eleven, maybe I can't remember now. Um, I remember it was part of the East Anglian Book Awards at that yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, how how do you see his reputation and his impact a, a kind of accruing over that period post his death. Well, it's interesting because Waterdog has been this lovely sort of sleeper success and word of mouth success. And I know it, it's sold more than 120,000 copies and it's probably reached half a million readers because you find dogged copies of it mm. everywhere and so forth. But his literary reputation undoubtedly grew with, with Robert McFarlane's celebration and analysis and, um, kind of critique of, of Roger's writing and, and why it was so special. And I know a lot of people have come to Roger through Rob's writing too. And I do think he leaves a significant literary legacy. And I do also know some nature writers who are a little sniffy about Roger and feel that his influence is overstated mm. or, or undeserved given the paucity of his published work. But Roger was undoubtedly a lifelong writer and some of his unpublished writing is brilliant. But I do think he brought um, humour to what became British nature writing and a lot of British nature writing has been fairly humourless <laughs> in, a, in a sense. I also think... I think sort of British nature writing in it in its most parochial form will be seen as this uh, literary explosion between about 
2000 and 2020 and I think that original innovative stuff is mostly disappeared now and mm. we're and it's it's expressing itself in other more interesting forms like in in novels I think and poetry now rather than narrative non-fiction yes. but I think Roger's waterlogue will be seen as absolutely an early classic of British nature writing and a kind of template for other writers I mean my butterfly Isles is a kind of quest a bit like Roger's around Britain mm-hmm. so I've clearly been influenced consciously and subconsciously by by his writing and so but I think when you look back at the quality of some of his writing and the creative interplay of ideas and the way he observes the minute and um how beautifully he does all that and brings in lots of literary references and social history mm. I think it's a exemplar of that kind of writing of that kind of narrative non-fiction that is exciting and um, multidisciplinarian in a sense mm. crossing all those boundaries Roger was a great pusher of boundaries crosser yeah. of boundaries and I think his writing does that and some of it is pretty close to fiction too <laughs> yeah like just kind of on that very point jumping back when you were curating stitching together weaving parts of the narrative kind of writing with roger were there any bits where you thought "Ooh, was that have i just really made that up or is that justified were there were there elements of of your own words or your own writing that sort of caught you and thought i need to check that so yeah there were i think one of the reasons I decided to try and do it as Roger was that I found myself when I was writing as me in the conventional biography, I found I was robbing Roger's uh, metaphors and, and observations and, and sort of almost not realising, you know, when you've read so much of someone, you yeah. become influenced by them Absolutely. and you end up aping their style. And, and I thought, you know, rather than have a watered down Roger from me, why not have true Roger? I, I took a few decisions because I think a lot of people are going to ask how much is me and how much is Roger and um, basically I never introduced an adjective that wasn't Roger's Mm -hmm. and I never talked about his emotional life in Roger's words unless he had explicitly said something you know Mm -hmm. the sort of emotional stuff felt particularly important I think I once put in I think I once put in a metaphor or an analogy that was mine just for fun basically just <laughs> to see if because I felt it was as good as as something that Roger would have written but um, basically the only things that I do is add kind of context and structure and um, and a bit of extra historical information mm. where I found I lost material because for a while I, I, I wrote as Roger or assembled Roger alongside with my own original draft and compared like for like and what I was losing and I lost some really nice social history around the Barsham fairs which was this wonderful period of, of hippie fairs in 1970 Suffolk created by all these um, artistic Londoners who'd moved up from the big smoke to the country countryside and so I lost some of that which I was a bit sad about but in other places I felt it was okay to add in little bits of Mm. historical fact and context to to situate the writer and so um, but the writing the storytelling is is pure Roger Mm. and he had I mean what is now described as a portfolio career but uh, he really jumped around you know where where, uh, he obviously he started in advertising he kind of went into he was working with organization save the whale etc he was a teacher he just 
all you know, filmmaker, kind of script writer, the whole the whole lot. Where do you think he might have turned? It's really interesting to to wonder, isn't it, Chris? And um, I love the fact that uh, I mean, he was he's a beautiful embodiment of the best and and some some of the worst of the 1960s generation but he was also a pure original in many mm. ways and and he was always seeking new forms of stimulation and new challenges and it, there was a restlessness about him and um, from a biographical point of view it was lovely how he jumped careers every few years because it meant that you could write chronologically but in a quite a thematic way yeah, so yeah. you get Roger the advertising guy in the 60s and so on but I do think had he lived longer he wouldn't have stood still and I think he would have written a beautiful memoir and he would have written a book exactly like Notes from Walnut Tree Farm too mm. but I think he would have he wouldn't have written some um, unoriginal British nature writing in the late 2010s say he would have been doing something <clears throat> different by that point mm. and I think he would have been a great campaigner he would have his friends certainly think he would have joined XR. He would have been a real vociferous campaigner to clean up our rivers. Mm. I do think part of his legacy is an environmental one. And he was very prescient. In yeah. 1983, he formed this uh, charity, co-founded it called Common Ground, which yeah. championed neighbourhood nature, churchyards, road verges, etc. And all that stuff's come back into view since the pandemic. And we've realised the importance of local green space. Mm. And Roger would have been right there championing that. And I think he would have written something very creative and interesting about local nature mm. and its importance and how it sustains our souls as well as our providing more um, pragmatic uses like clean water and, and, and clean air. Mm. Yeah, I was kind of pondering on it and I kind of, I couldn't imagine him kind of moving into the social media world because I kind of think that that, that sort of romantic cast to his writing and approach doesn't find much favour in that very harshly lit environment. <laughs> but I could really see, see him or hear him as a podcaster. Uh, you know, can you imagine what he would have, could have done in that kind of kind of revised audio landscape that we have now? Definitely. Actually, that's a really good point, Chris, because he made three wonderful Radio 4 short Radio 4 documentaries while he was still alive. Mm -hmm. He had the most beautiful voice. And the producer of those documentaries said that she would un undoubtedly have carried on working with him, for him. He would have made tons more radio he would have probably become a big big figure a regular on radio four and then of <laughs> course gone into podcasting and i'm sure yeah. as we sit here roger would be 80 and he would have a very successful podcast hanging out with gary lineker and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know the big players yeah it feels like a, it, it does feel like a loss that we haven't got that part of his career um but we are it is uh, there is a huge amount to be grateful for, I think, with his work. In terms of the rest of his legacy, um, kind of, who would you point us towards as writers that you might think, actually, that there's some sort of link here coming through from Roger's work and legacy into, into the present day? Well, I think Robert McFarlane would would, would acknowledge his his debt to Roger <coughs> and um, what he's taken from Roger and how he's been influenced by Roger. And I'm I, I mean I would I would certainly say um, I'm the same there. And in terms of um, you know wanting to add people to stories about nature and wanting to add humour, and then you see it. I think you see Roger in. Um, 
I'm not saying I'm a significant nature writing figure, but I think you see him and his passion and his romanticism in uh, almost all the significant British nature writers of the last 10 years, people like Helen MacDonald and, um, and Amy Liptrot. And um, I think there's a whole kind of caught by the river crowd who mm. have been tremendously inspired by Roger and influenced by him. And some of the more kind of young campaigning people and authors would also be taking some conscious or subconscious influence from from Roger and that and that 60s generation that sort of I see it in in 20 somethings now that sort of refusal to take the first answer for the final answer mm -hmm. you know that questioning of authority and I think that's coming back and I think Roger's writing would chime with with what's coming mm. as well i think i think he'll be there as a kind of um patron saintly figure over over some of our younger angrier writers in the near future mm. yeah that sounds very plausible indeed this is probably not a very fair question given that you're in the middle of kind of promoting this book and uh, you've got a lot of events and activities happening but what's up what's happening next for you I am not actually sure. And for once, I normally line up another book straight away and kind of jump into projects. And I think I've probably um, jumped into too many books in the last decade and actually maybe less is more. Mm -hmm. And I would love to write another biography mm -hmm. and I haven't found a subject yet. Okay. And I, but I'm going to just sit back and let things percolate and yeah. um, enjoy getting this book out because I'm, I'm really excited and um, and I'm, uh, it sounds um, trite, but I'm, I'm proud of this book because I think it's a little bit like Roger. It's a little bit original mm -hmm. um, in a way, perhaps that some of my other writing hasn't been. So, mm. um, so I want to sort of get out there and hopefully talk to lots of people about this book and um, wait and s wait for a good idea to find me rather than rushing out and grabbing one. And sometimes I, I think I'd urge other writers um, and young writers perhaps um, don't don't grab the first idea that arrives. Mm. you know just just let things percolate for a bit there's no there's no harm in a bit of um, procrastination <laughs> no it can be very healthy indeed patrick thank you so much for joining us this morning it's been a real pleasure and i think the swimmer the wildlife of roger deacon is out now from hamish hamilton and really can't recommend it enough so i hope people do go out and buy it and um thank you for joining us thanks chris thanks for having me a big thank you to patrick for his time Make sure to pick up a copy of The Swimmer and explore Roger's fascinating life and work if you haven't done so already. If you have any questions or you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Writers' Centre. We're on Facebook and you can drop us an email or sign up to our newsletter at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk. As a UK registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation today over on the website by going to the Support Us page. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review because it helps other people to find us. Thanks again, keep writing, and I'll catch you on the next episode. <laughs>